Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Daniel Larson. Dr. Larson is a college lecturer in history at Trinity College, Cambridge. And today we are discussing his book, Plotting Peace, American Peacemakers, British Codebreakers, and Britain at War, 1914-1917, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Dr. Larson. Uh, welcome. Yes, hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Larson, um, what would you say is the thesis of your book? Um, so so the, the, the main argument cuts... Uh, 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 is about Britain and America in the, the First World War. Uh, the, the main argument is that uh, there was a key faction in the British government uh, that took American peace diplomacy much more seriously than people have recognized uh, in um, uh, 1916 in particular. Um, and it, it traces why they were interested, um, uh, which was mainly out of economic reasons, um, and then, and then uh, uh, why... Uh, these efforts uh, failed to come to fruition in terms of uh, uh, looking at the intelligence dimension and, and uh, the division in, in British politics. So, um, so, so it looks at uh, uh, American diplomacy and, uh, and the British war effort um, is the, the main, main focus of the book. How would you say that your book challenges the existing historiographical consensus on the subject area covered by the book? Um, well, so, so the existing uh, historiography is pretty united uh, in the assumption that uh, the British leadership never had any interest in American efforts to mediate the First World War. Um, that, uh, uh, that, that Colonel House, who was the, the kind of the figurehead or the, the head of, uh, of these efforts uh, for the United States side, he was the chief advisor and, and confidant of U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, um, 
that that his effort uh, never went anywhere, and that um, and that the only people who were interested uh, or who looked to be interested in American mediation were only pretending uh, to be so for his sake, uh, you know, just humoring him. Um, and uh, and my work uh, uh, challenges that. It argues um, uh, that uh, you know, extensive research in British archives uh, shows that. Um, that he was taken much more seriously than people recognized. That the British um, uh, were, or some of the British leaders were, were starting to thinking, think about wanting to find a way out of the First World War, um, mainly for economic reasons. That uh, that that they did not believe uh, that the British war effort um, was capable of winning the war uh, without the United States. How and why does your treatment of Woodrow Wilson as peacemaker differ from that of Philip Zelikoff in his recent book, a book which I might add relies heavily on your own? Um, yes. Uh, so so um, we, we have come to rather different um, uh, conclusions on that front, um, or, or at least uh, of the American side. Uh, so so in, in my portrayal, um, Colonel House uh, comes across as, as quite a competent character uh, who uh, understands what, uh, what power he has at his disposal um, and who uh, is um, able to cultivate a, a, a desirably strong diplomatic relationship with, uh, with the British. Um, while Woodrow Wilson, on the other hand, doesn't really seem to grapple uh, with the realities of um, uh, uh, of British uh, British uh, uh, politics and and of the uh, the realities of the of the of the geopolitics of the European war. He sort of leaves these to house, um, and it leads Wilson to make uh, some very serious mistakes, in my view. Um, whereas uh, Zelico's uh, treatment is, is uh, a little bit the other way around um, uh, in terms of, of how he sees these two individuals. Um, uh, but I'll uh, uh, leave, uh, leave the reader to explore that difference, um, I suppose. Um, how can, though, your um, a mostly positive view of Colonel House um, make sense insofar as... Uh, a, he did not have any diplomatic experience at all prior to 1913, 1914. B, he didn't speak any European languages. And C, at times he appears to be um, almost what Zelikov refers to as uh, uh, either a villain or a fool. Um, well, uh, so I think there's a few reasons. First of all, um, uh, I think in a lot of respects, Diplomacy is an extension of uh, the kinds of personal politics uh, the House was involved in uh, before uh, the First World War and had spent his entire life cultivating in terms of understanding networks of people um, and understanding networks of politics. I mean, I think uh, the, the, um, applying that to the international stage, House has a little bit of a learning curve. Um, but... Uh, um, but d despite that learning curve, um, <clears throat> like that, that kind of expertise in, in the politics personal relations is something that he does very well. And he, um, and he does very well in kind of cultivating 
a really serious trust uh, on the part of Sir Edward Grey in particular. Um, and, uh, and I don't think that the, that the, the presentation of him uh, as, a, as a fool uh, really stands up to scrutiny uh, in light of, of the receptive British response uh, to, his, uh, to his diplomacy, that that, uh, that that presentation makes sense. Um, when, uh, when, when the view of House is, is that his diplomacy is going nowhere. Um, um, but actually, like the, the uh, American peace diplomacy uh, requires, uh, for, it, for it to succeed on the part of the British, requires a very serious level of trust uh, between Britain and the United States, um, that it requires uh, the British to believe that Wilson will actually deliver um, that the Americans would deliver on the promises uh, that they make uh, in the form of, of the, the House Gray Memorandum, uh, in, which, in which the United States secretly promises a set of minimum, uh, uh, minimum peace terms. Um, and for House to, to, to secure that trust on the part of a number of British leaders, um, I think reflects uh, a much more serious diplomatist uh, than others uh, have given House credit for. Now, your um, uh, view of the relationship between Colonel House and Sir Edward Gray relies heavily on uh, the Trevelyan biography. And uh, while you were writing the book, because it's not in the bibliography, um, came out uh, Thomas Ate's what widely regarded as definitive biography Now, on uh, Sir Edward Gray. Now, Ate has a somewhat different a view of the uh, Gray House relationship. For the most part, he says that he can't make out whether or not Gray regarded House as a genuine friend, and that for the most part, he has the impression that Gray's uh, primarily interested in uh, manipulating House for purposes of UK diplomacy. Um, mm -hmm. Do you still adhere to the Trevelyan uh, view? Um. Well, so, so I wouldn't say that it, it rests on, on Trevelyan's view. I would say um, that, that actually uh, there are a lot of documents from a lot of various archives, uh, in particular uh, Charles Harding's uh, papers at, uh, well, just, just here at the University of Cambridge Library, um, discussed, uh, uh, Harding's rather, rather disgust at um, the extent to which Gray uh, trust house, um, and it's reflected also in the, the, the Barty papers in, uh, uh, in London. Um, and so, and so I think I, I have compiled a, a sufficient number of quotations from, from across British archives that show, um, other people, uh, within the British government's, uh, horror, um, uh, at the extent to which or, or his opponents uh, uh, within the British government uh, horror at his his trust of House um, that that if um, Gray was was feigning uh, or or was just humoring House um, that that he would have no reason there would be no reason to, to find all these uh, quotations in various British documents so so certainly I I, I hold to the view that that um, Gray trusted. Um, and had a very favorable opinion of House. In fact, if you if you look at some of the correspondence between the two after 
um, both are, are no longer relevant on the political scene. There's, there's a real degree of genuine warmth um, in this uh, uh, that, that I think reflects the bond that had been created in 1915 and 1916. Um, so so, so, so I, I, I very much uh, adhere to the, to the view that this was a genuine and, and warm relationship. Now, if um, the hero of uh, Zelikow's book was Bethmann Holweg, the German chancellor, the hero of your book, correct me if I'm wrong, would be, if, they, if the book had to have a hero, would be Reginald McKenna, um, who was, uh, for most of the book, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in succession to Lloyd George. Um, mm-hmm. it, would, would that be a correct assessment of your opinion of uh, McKenna? Um, uh, I, well, I wouldn't go so far as to say hero, um, but I, I mean, I do think McKenna, uh, uh, McKenna and Asquith uh, in particular have been sort of overly harshly treated by history, um, and that, uh, uh, that, that uh, a, a more careful assessment re- reveals a more positive portrayal. So, so I, I, I shy away from the word hero, but, but, um, um, but otherwise, uh, 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 sure, um, yes, it's a reasonably positive portrayal of, of Reginald McKenna and, and Herbert Asquith um, as, as British leaders. Now, um, would you agree with the, the assessment that, at least of some historians, that one of the reasons, not the only one by any means, but one of the reasons why Asquith promoted McKenna to such high posts as Chancellor, Home Secretary, First Lord of the Admiralty, was the fact that uh, Asquith enjoyed, for lack of a better expression, un amite amoureuse with um, McKenna's wife? Um, uh, well, well, so this, uh, this relationship arises a bit later on um i forget i forget exactly when um uh this begins uh, uh but uh, but it's 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 um nearer to the to the start of the first world war um it's it's uh it's an interesting relationship um i've been through the um uh through the the letters he he uh, exchanges with pamela mckenna uh, at the uh, which are which are at Churchill College here in Cambridge, um, and uh, it, it's not quite clear exactly what the relationship or the setup is between um, uh, between these two uh, three people. I mean, it's, uh, I think Martin Farr, um, who who is uh, an excellent scholar on on Reginald McKenna, um, makes a convincing case that that uh, uh, McKenna is is aware of um, the correspondence uh, going between uh, the prime minister and his wife. And so it's, it's not quite clear exactly what's going on. But, um, but no, I, I mean, I think the, the relationship between Asquith and McKenna uh, stems much more from uh, a political bond um, rather than uh, this kind of complicated personal relationship that... Um, uh, a little more difficult to work out. Now, why do you have a higher opinion of McKenna as Chancellor of the Exchequer than Lloyd George, who was his predecessor? Ah, um, well, so, so a, a lot of it then, well, so, so the, the focus of the book, um, I mean, the, the, the two have various merits on, on various issues, but, but the focus of the book is on uh, Britain's economic relationship with the United States, which is of, 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 of crucial importance. 
and uh, uh, and the, the the and Reginald McKenna understands this relationship, uh, the, uh, uh, whereas Lloyd George simply doesn't, um, because the key problem facing uh, British finance um, and the Anglo-American economic relationship is the is the huge dependence of the British government uh, and the British and Allied war effort on American goods and American supplies, um, and an inability to uh, secure proper financing for these in the United States, that Americans simply won't lend the funds necessary to sustain the supply line. Um, and so the British are trying to, uh, trying to sustain this supply line through liquidation of assets. Um, but the problem with this is that you only have so many assets that you can liquidate um, before they're gone. Um, and Reginald McKenna understands this problem, um, that he sees that, 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 this American, that these American supplies are, are operating on a time limit. Um, and and I, 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 I believe, and I, I believe I, I show in the book, that, that Reginald McKenna is right on this point, that the, that the British war effort, they either have to get the United States into the war by early 1917, uh, early to mid-1917, or they have to figure out a completely different way of fighting the First World War that doesn't rely on these American supplies, or they have to bring the First World War to an end. Um, and, and Lloyd George simply refuses to come to grapple uh, to, 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 to grapple with this reality, um, uh, he he consistently uh, believes that that basically Britain is financially invulnerable um, and that and that this isn't a real problem, uh, and uh, and and so uh, yeah, I, I judge him pretty harshly for for this um, uh, simple refusal to come to grips with the reality of the situation. So actually, in the book, you. There is a division in the British government uh, between what you refer to as realist versus maximalist. Can you mm -hmm. expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So, so, so the realists are basically the people who understand this problem that that um, that these American supplies are limited. Uh, and as I as I as I as I put it, the the, the strategic decision facing the British government in the, in the winter of 1915 and 1916. Um, is is they have they have a choice um, that uh, a long war, uh, vast amounts of American supplies, uh, or a massive British war effort. Choose any two, um, is how I put it. And uh, and the realists come to grips with it. They understand that either they they can rely on these supplies, um, or but it comes with uh, and. Uh, have a big British war effort, which is what they decide to do, but it comes with a trade-off um, that these supplies are not going to last very long uh, and, that, and that they only have uh, a, a finite window in which to make this great big effort. Um, on the other hand, uh, the maximalists are, are people who refuse to come to, come to grips with this reality. They insist on uh, a maximal British war effort, so maximum American supplies, maximum uh, uh, British, British uh, uh, deployment, British war effort, um, uh, while believing that these can be sustained indefinitely, and uh, and I argue that that that, that they're wrong, uh, that that the British government did not have the ability to fight the kind of war effort that they demanded. Now, what was the House Grey Memorandum, and why was not activated by the British in 1916? Yes. Uh, well, so the House Grey Memorandum is a, an agreement that, that, uh, 
uh, House and Gray concluded um, in February of 1916, uh, in which um, uh, they, uh, the Americans promised that uh, they would secure a kind of uh, minimum uh, compromise set of peace terms for the Allies at a peace conference um, if the Allies agreed to, to, uh, to, to support such a conference, um, and that the United States would attempt to uh, leverage its power against Germany, um, and that if Germany refused to come to this conference, the United States would threaten them uh, with war in order to, to bring them into conference, and that the United States um, would threaten Germany with war um, if it did not accept uh, uh, this, this set of minimum uh, peace terms. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, the, the reasons why it doesn't get activated are... are are multiple. Um, some stem from uh, mistakes on the part of uh, President Wilson, um, who uh, unintentionally undermined uh, the foundations of the agreement in a public speech in May of 1916. Uh, some of it has to do with this, this internal debate uh, between uh, the two different uh, sides in the British government, um, uh, one of whom doesn't see any reason to bring in the Americans because they refuse to accept uh, the kind of strategic calculus that, that's driving the other side uh, to, to believe that the House Grave Memorandum ought to be implemented. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of very uh, complex politics and diplomacy that goes into it. But, um, but I think those are, those are kind of the, 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 the two central factors. Um, at play. Why did the cabinet decide to rely upon the sum offensive to deliver, in the words of Lloyd George, quote, the knockout blow, unquote? Um, well, so, 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 so a, a lot of it has to do with the politics of um, uh, the internal politics of the British government, um, which is evenly divided between liberals and conservatives. Um, the liberals uh, by and large, uh, tend to be a bit more skeptical about this, uh, the, the, the ability of this offensive uh, to produce results. Um, and as, as the liberals tend to be the realists, they're also much more anxious about the consequences of, of a failure on the Islam, that, that, uh, that they recognize that, um, uh, that their strategy is one of, uh, as I sometimes refer to it, as battle of the Psalm or bust. Uh, that they either have to win the war with the Battle of the Somme or, um, or that the war is going uh, potentially to be over as a, as a consequence of not being able to rely on the U.S. as their uh, source of supplies. Um, whereas, uh, whereas the conservatives, uh, who, who not all of them, but, but by and large tend to be maximalists, um, first have a, have a great deal more confidence in, in uh, Battle of the Somme to produce results, <clears throat> a uh, higher level of trust in the military leadership. And then secondly, uh, a kind of dis, a disbelieving of the, of the necessity to win the war uh, with the Battle of the Somme, that, it, that it's perfectly fine for the Battle of the Somme to um, produce sort of middling to positive results uh, in the expectation that fresh offensives can be, um, can be run on the same kind of basis uh, in, in uh, the the subsequent year. Uh, why were such intelligent and sophisticated diplomats 
like Lords Hardinage and Birdie, so vilely opposed to American mediation? Um, uh, part of it comes from uh, uh, the strategic calculus um, that that Hardinage is, is is much more willing to say that. Um, you know, at one point he, he says that the Battle of the Somme has produced good results and we look forward to continuing on uh, the struggle next year uh, to, to something like that. And so he, he, he doesn't accept this strategic calculus um, and, and so sees no reason to bring in the Americans uh, is, is, is a large part of it. Um, a, a second part of it is, is a kind of uh, reflexive hostility to, uh, uh, to the to, uh, to the Americans, part of part of which perhaps stems from the fact that they never got to know Colonel House very well. Um, that Colonel House uh, uh, didn't um, uh, cultivate them because Hardinge was yet not yet in post, and um, uh, and Bertie was not yet um, uh, well, and, and Bertie was just simply not someone who he had seen very much of in Paris. Um, and so, and so I think uh, some of it reflects the kind of hostility towards this person that they do not know uh, and have no reason to trust. And, um, and, then, and then combined with that is, is the, the U.S. presidential election in 1916, um, which adds to a sense um, that perhaps House is only over here for domestic political reasons um, and that, and that uh, 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 Bertie at one point talks about, um, you know, Wilson... Uh, being affected by the uh, at several points as Wilson being driven by the presidential election and by nothing else, um, even though that's completely untrue. Um, so I uh, I think that uh, sums it up pretty well. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Why was the conscription crisis of 1916 so important in terms of domestic and indeed uh, other aspects of British uh, policy and, and politics? Um, yes, yeah, so the conscription crisis is, is, is sort of at the center of this um, British strategic debate. So, um, so the question is, is Britain going to mount an all-out war effort in uh, 1916, um, or is it going to hold back a bit um, and concentrate a bit more on sustaining this American supply link? Um, and, and the question with conscription is basically, um, uh, conscription is what's needed in order to produce the men for the all-out war effort. Um, and so conscription is a kind of proxy debate for this, this much larger strategic debate. Um, 
uh, which which plays out over over the winter of 1916, and that's why that's why the issue of conscription is so important. It's because um, it's because the debate over it is really a debate not over you know the the, the niceties of whether um, it's appropriate to bring people by force into the you know to compel people into the armed forces, but it's really a debate over the United States and about what kind of British war effort is going to be fought in 1916 and how long. Um, uh, a British war effort um, that relies on the United States as its base of supplies uh, could last. Why do you regard the German mediation efforts of 1916 and early 1917 as not being entirely serious or only serious insofar as uh, such mediation efforts would result in the German victory? Yes, because well, I mean, I think it's, um, it's clear uh, that that the kinds of proposals that Germany makes are, are aimed at securing a kind of victory by negotiation. Um, that the kinds of terms that, that Germany suggests that it's willing to accept um, are, the, are the terms of um, potentially a, a more moderate German victory uh, than, than Germany aimed at earlier uh, in 19, uh, uh, earlier in, in the war, uh, before before the autumn of 1916. Um, but there's still terms uh, that, that reflect a German victory, which reflects the, the situation on the ground. I and mean, Germany has made significant territorial advances throughout Belgium, into France, uh, into Russia. Um, uh, the, 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 they and their allies have a significant military advantage um, in southeastern Europe. Um, and so, on the, on the basis of what we see in German diplomacy uh, in, 19, in late 1915, um, the, the kind of peace that Germany is aiming at appears to be a kind of victory by negotiation, um, uh, and uh, uh, which differs pretty considerably from the from the kind of uh, more more uh, more closer closer to a to a kind of genuine compromise. Um, that uh, reflected in um, what the British liberals uh, are interested in uh, and what the Americans hope to achieve. How and why did uh, Lloyd George manage to oust Asquith in December 1916 from the premiership? Ah, yes. This is um, uh, a fascinating series of events. Um, so it's a, a fairly complex political crisis um, it, that, that involves a lot of brinksmanship by Lloyd George and a, and a fair few mistakes by Asquith. Um, is that it, the, 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 the circumstances at the beginning of December uh, or the end of November of 1916 is actually one in which Lloyd George has been outmaneuvered and is isolated, um, that there's no appetite for replacing uh, Asquith, or, or not much of one, uh, amongst the conservatives, uh, rank and file, um, in the, in the, in the cabinet. And, um, and yet Lloyd George kicks off, kicks off the crisis with a, with a really dramatic threat, um, that he is going to not only resign from the government, um, but he is going to stump across the country, delivering hostile speeches, attempting to force the collapse of, of the Asquith coalition. Um, and it's this threat uh, that, that sets the circumstances uh, for, for, for the next few days. The conservatives decide that, that 
uh, Lloyd George cannot be allowed to make this threat um, and that uh, uh, or to carry out this threat and that uh, the only thing that to be done is for Lloyd George to try to form a government. Whether or not he succeeds is, a, is, a, is another question. Um, uh, and Asquith attempts to, to make a deal with Lloyd George. Um, and uh, according to new documents I, I found at the University of Oxford um, that were only put into uh, researchers' uh, availability or researchers' hands over the past uh, handful of years or you know, recent years, um, uh, Asquith thinks he's succeeded in getting Lloyd George to back down. Um, but on, on the other hand, um, uh, uh, to the extent that Asquith thinks this, uh, he's, he's wrong, uh, and Lloyd George leaks very violently against the deal that, uh, that they supposedly struck, or that Asquith thinks they struck, um, and uh, eventually maneuvers uh, Asquith into a position where Lloyd George resigns from a position of strength, um, and forces Asquith to resign in a, in a much weaker position, uh, sort of six days later. And, um, and, and, and this position of weakness allows Lloyd George uh, to, uh, to succeed in forming a government, whereas uh, a few days earlier, um, he might well, or probably would have failed uh, to put a government together and, and Asquith would have returned to the top role with his position strengthened. So would it be correct to say that uh, Lloyd George, throughout this period, November, December 1916, was he, in addition to being duplicitous and opportunistic, uh, also manipulating the situation and therefore saw an opportunity come to oust Asquith? Or did he aim from the very beginnings to oust Asquith and he just used what came on his way in terms of opportunities and weapons for that purpose? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, Lloyd George was definitely determined to seize power. Um, the form in which this power would take uh, uh, could could be up for negotiation, but Lloyd George was determined to seek power. Um, I mean, there's sort of a really good document actually from earlier in 1916 in which Lloyd George talks about trying to force a general election in the middle of the war and then come in and win the, the general election. So it's clear that Lloyd George really has his eye on the top prize. Um, from an early stage, and that this is this is a matter of personal ambition, um, and and yes, he in my view he acts in a in a very uh, manipulative way throughout the crisis, a brilliant way um, uh, from from a matter of kind of um, tactical politics, um, but but certainly a very manipulative and duplicitous way um, in which he tells uh, different people uh, very different things depending on what suits him uh, politically. Uh, so, 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 but uh, so a, a master manipulator, but also a brilliant uh, political tactician, how I would describe it. Now, upon entering number 10 in December 1916, what au fond was uh, Lloyd George's opinion, uh, or what did he really think about the UK's chances of winning the war at that point? Uh, sorry, can you repeat that? Certainly. Uh, upon entering uh, 10 Downing Street in uh, December 1916, what au fond was uh, Lloyd George's uh, thinking about the UK's chances of winning the war at that point? Ah, um, so Lloyd George, um, he comes into office with a very sort of contradictory set of views uh, in that he, 
he thinks that the war effort is going terribly badly, um, but at the same time, he just recently publicly committed himself to uh, to a knockout blow. Um, and so, as as, as one observer um, uh, put it, that he seems to to combine the kind of gloomiest uh, view of the state of the war alongside the the uh, a, a really ambitious um, uh, view of what. Uh, uh, how the the, the the Allies should win the war. Um, and so it, 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 reconciling these is, I think, um, possible uh, in that, I mean, I think Lloyd George had a huge amount of confidence in his own abilities um, and his own ability to kind of set things right. Uh, and that he believed that... Um, uh, and, that, and that maybe the, the, the term knock, knockout blow is, is kind of better understood as a kind of exaggerated metaphor. Um, that Lloyd George uh, believed he could secure um, a kind of victory, um, that, that, uh, but one that didn't necessarily have to involve um, uh, you know, allied troops marching into Berlin. Um, that, that, it, uh, that, that an allied victory... Um, could take a more limited form, um, but that it still had to be a form of allied victory. Um, and so I think, I think that's kind of the best way uh, to, to, to understand his view, is that he thinks that Britain's got a lot of time left, um, that the Allies have a lot of time left if they need it, um, uh, where, uh, you know, uh, that, um, and so with that time, um, he can lead... Uh, the Allies into a kind of favorable position um, that that could be called a victory. Now, could it not be argued that uh, at bottom um, that Wilson's and House's underlying Anglophilia made them extremely reluctant to coerce the Allies, the Entente powers, into uh, entering a peace conference, and that in the absence of any type of uh, real American coercion, the Entente powers would simply refuse to pursue the peace option? Um, I mean, to an extent. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think that, um, that, the, 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 that it's not the absence of coercion against the Allies that's central. It's, um, it's establishing what it is uh, uh, that Germany wants. Uh, and that... Uh, that it's it's about establishing um, the way in which these negotiations are going to unfold, uh, such that the Americans could be confident of them uh, resulting in a kind of uh, in a, in a compromise uh, outcome that is that is a that is a real compromise. Um, and and so because there's this, there's this really illustrative misunderstanding. Um, or perhaps deliberate misunderstanding on the part of the German ambassador to Washington, Count Berenstorff, um, in January of 1970, in which he, he sort of misleads House into thinking that Germany is, is ready to accept, uh, is ready to make huge concessions, and is ready to accept a, a genuine, uh, you know, a real compromise as, as, a, as a result of war. Um, and House leaps at this and, and is perfectly happy to uh, apply all kinds of pressure to the British um, to make this result happen. Um, but 
but then um, Berensdorf reveals, you know, through some, some diplomatic back and forth, Berensdorf reveals that, that this isn't the case. Um, and, uh, and so the, the issue is really of, of uh, you know, the leverage against the Allies, the Americans have it, um, but they only want to use it um, if they can be confident that the peace they're going to force the Allies into um, is a peace that's a real compromise, a, a peace without victory. Um, and they don't want to force the Allies into a circumstance in which uh, the Allies are accepting what is in, uh, you know, at root a German victory, um, even if a kind of moderate one, um, because they don't believe, Wilson in particular doesn't believe that anything other than a peace without victory, um, a, a real compromise, is going to result in, in a kind of durable peace uh, that will last uh, the test of time. Was there ever, in fact, regardless of what Gray, McKenna, Asquith, and Balfour thought, a parliamentary majority in favor of a compromised peace in the period that the book deals with? Uh, yes. So, so that, uh, that's a really interesting question. Because, I mean, Parliament is very is important here. It's, it's, it's an actor um, that, that has to be taken into consideration. Um, but at the same time... Uh, it's not as though the diplomacy that the uh, that the government gets up to is going to be subject to a to a direct parliamentary vote. It's not as though um, uh, this will be this will be submitted to the House of Commons for its approval. That uh, that the the question the power of the House of Commons is really one of of blowing up the government of of a, a vote of no confidence um, that that would blow up the government. Uh, so, so, the, so, so really the kind of the, the political question is, is about holding the government together um, in such a way uh, that would hold that kind of threat at bay. Um, and this, this, of course, would be a, a, a very delicate um, political thicket, uh, to be sure. I am in, in no way uh, understating uh, the, the delicacy of, of such a problem. But at the, at the same time, um, I mean, the, the importance of Parliament uh, should not necessarily be overestimated um, in, in, in terms of how this diplomacy would, would play out. Would it be true to say that for you that perhaps one of the chief points of the book is an anti-teleological one, that contingency in history matters a great deal? Um, yes. I mean, I, 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 I think contingency in history does matter a great deal, uh, that um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of moments in the book uh, where things you know could happen very differently, or um, where where things are just very chaotic. Uh, that that um, I mean one 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 thing, uh, especially when it comes to British foreign policy uh, in this period, is that British British foreign policy is is chaos. Um, uh, that there are all kinds of different people doing all kinds of um, uh, different things uh, and uh, uh, and competing with one another, um, and so uh, in such an in such an element or, or in such a situation, contingency is of course going to be very important um, because it's going to determine you know who wins which debates at what point and whether the winners of those debates at which you know at those particular points go on. Um, to, uh, to to have various other consequences. Um, so yes, I, I mean I think contingency is very important. There are these structural factors um, that we have to take into account that, that set um, 
that set up sort of the, the, the situation and how the situation could turn out. But, um, um, but in a lot of ways, foreign policy actors really have the hands, you know, have, have uh, uh, their own, have a great deal of agency and a great deal uh, of ability to shape how events turn out. Um, and so there's a lot of contingency in terms of um, how that agency gets used. Following from that, would it be true to say um, that the events of the first four months of 1917 almost make it seem as if it indeed, quote, God was an Englishman, unquote? <laughs> um, uh, to an extent. Um, I mean, Britain certainly gets very lucky. Uh, I mean, part of it is not just luck. Part of it is um, the uh, the policies of Asquith uh, uh, and and of of his followers follow, followers within the government, trying to extend this American lifeline for as long as possible. Um, but it's true that the Americans come to the war almost at precisely the moment when British assets in the United States are about to uh, are about to be exhausted, um, and that. Uh, and that this, these British supplies, uh, that Germany tries to cut off, that's the whole point of this, the unrestricted submarine warfare, that ultimately brings the United States into the war, is to cut off these supplies. Um, and so the race, uh, is really in some ways between, um, those in, in the British government who understand the importance of extending the life of these supplies for as long as possible by conserving British assets in America. Um, and those in Germany, who, um, who understands the threat the United States poses to the German war effort. Um, and, uh, and so Britain gets extremely lucky in that, um, and that, that the United States enters the war um, just, just before a potentially war-ending financial crisis. Yeah. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I think it would be the lesson about um, about contingency and about the, the the extent to which people have control more control over the, over situations than, than than sometimes people realize that um, that there is a tendency sometimes to view international events and international outcomes um, as you know being in the hands of 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 these swirling forces. That are beyond mortal control. Um, that 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 history is somehow predestined to play out uh, in certain ways. Um, and that, but I would say no. That um, that people people shape history, um, and people uh, get to make uh, and people get to and have to make decisions um, that shape how uh, history is going to turn out. Um, and so I'd say it's one of one of human control over over events, um, and that and that this human control uh, should not be underestimated. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Larson, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Larson. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. 